Our government and our citizens recognize the urgency of the task. To find and stop Al-Qaeda before it could shed the blood of more innocent men, women, and children, be it in America or be it in any other corner of the world. And, as has been the case throughout its then 54-year history, CIA was looked to for answers, not only to the questions on the threats we faced, but also to questions about what we were going to do to stop future attacks. CIA's mission in the wake of the 9-11 attacks would be a multi-dimensional one. Stopping Al-Qaeda would require the CIA to work closely with, with its intelligence community, military, homeland security, and law enforcement partners, as well as with numerous intelligence and security services around the globe. To be successful, CIA officers knew that they needed speed, agility, courage, resources, and, most important, intelligence. Their mission was to acquire through human and technical operations and then to analyze with deep expertise whatever bits and pieces of information might help fill out the menacing yet incomplete puzzle of Al-Qaeda's terrorist plans. Indeed, there were numerous credible and very worrisome reports about a second and third wave of major attacks against the United States. And while we grieved, while we honored our dead, while we tended to our injured, and while we embarked on the long process of recovery, we feared more blows from an enemy we couldn't see and an evil we couldn't fathom. This is the backdrop against which the agency was directed by President Bush to carry out a program to detain terrorist suspects around the world. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Tim Kozak from the Veterans Project and JT Patton, a former intelligence specialist uh, working for the United States. Gentlemen, how's it going? Hey, John. Hey, Tim. How are you guys? Hey, great to be here with you, JT. I appreciate you as always letting me co-host your show little kind of a crazy decision john but i appreciate you making it from time <laughs> to time <laughs> um so actually tim uh, before we get started with jt can you talk about your upcoming project or did you want to wait yeah absolutely um you know i've got i'm i so i just went out to wichita falls for the southwest iwo jima reunion um and Obviously, some brave warriors there, about 10 or 11 of our World War II uh, veterans. It kind of started out, last year it was like 37, 38 guys. Now we're down to about 10 or 11 um, in that group. And there were five beach invaders from Iwo Jima who'd actually been on the beaches. Last year there were about 27 uh, so they're falling off quickly, as we know. We're losing 368 World War II veterans a day. Um, so it's important that, obviously, we get out there and cover them when we get the chance. So I was out there at the Iwo Jima reunion with Herschel Woody Williams. And Woody is the last remaining 
uh, Medal of Honor recipient from World War II on the Marine Corps side. Uh, so, you know, there there were about 27 or 28 Medal of Honor recipients from Iwo Jima. And wow. he's not only the last one from Iwo Jima, he's the last one from the Marine Corps from World War II. So he's about 95 years old, um, and I spent three days with him and another flamethrower operator named Don Graves. Um, they, I, I, I can't remember if Don was from 3rd from third Marine Division, but I know Woody was. And, uh, yeah, Woody took out seven pillboxes uh, with the flamethrower by himself. That's crazy. Um, yeah, he was combing the backside of one of the hills on Iwo Wall while uh, the flag was being raised. So um, while the flag was being raised, he was on the backside of that hill smoking those pillboxes getting the job done so absolutely incredible he changed out five flamethrowers during that time as well uh and he still doesn't he doesn't even remember how he did it he he, he's visited with like 10 different psychologists and none of them have been able to tell him you know help him bring those memories back because he said i i guess i was just so scared that i really didn't realize what was you know how how i was making those transfers but i had to have changed out at least five flamethrowers during that time because you only had 72 seconds of burn time on each flamethrower so um yeah he was just you know did did an incredible job received the medal of honor said that he didn't even know what the medal of honor was when he got called to dc um but he was pretty pretty uh obviously nervous because president truman was the one handing him the medal and you know that was a pretty exciting time for him but in all truth, I think President Truman should have probably been the one that was nervous. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Woody, I mean, 19 years old doing that. So absolutely incredible warrior. And I got to cover him and Don Graves. So they're thought to be the last two remaining flamethrowers from Iwo Jima. Um, there might be a couple more out there, but it's thought that Don and Woody are the last two remaining. So they tour a lot of these reunions together a lot so it was an absolute privilege to spend that time with him and man the honor that you feel sitting in a room with a man like that i mean obviously he has some level of celebrity you know he flipped the super bowl coin last year and he's done some pretty cool things he's had a battleship named after him and a and he's the only person with a armed forces reserve center which is an army armed forces reserve center He's the only Marine that's ever had an Army Armed Forces Reserve Center named after him. So, um, you know, he's an incredible guy, Um, still very spry at 95 years old, could definitely still beat me up. Um, So pretty, pretty incredible guy. Um, And it was an honor to cover him. So I'm looking forward to this project. And, you know, we got to thank the guys from recon and sniper foundation for sponsoring this project because they they really came together and helped me get out to them and they made it possible so and even without my sponsors you know this this project's hard to do so i'm thankful for those guys for coming together on this one and we've got a big project in the works uh, i can't talk about it in detail right now but it's going to be really big and I, I look forward to talking about that with you at a later date john yeah, that's definitely um, a really cool thing you guys are working on. Uh, and I think, speaking of Iwo Jima, I think there was a, a really good movie on it, right, a couple of years ago? 
Yeah, um, actually, Clint Eastwood made two, uh, Flags of Our Fathers, and um, I cannot remember the name of the other one, but the other one was like the was from the perspective of a Japanese uh, soldier. So right, Flags right. of Our Fathers was a Marine Corps perspective, and then oh, Letters from Iwo, Letters from Iwo Jima, I believe was. Yeah, yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was really actually both of those were really. Um, incredible films and i actually liked letters from me with jima a little more because it really gave you the perspective from a soldier who knew he was going to die you know um and the japanese you know obviously you know kirbyashi um the general there you know told them basically you know you're going to die but you take out 10 marines you know for you know when when you die so that was like uh, you know, the, all those guys absolutely knew they were going to die. And Woody was very honest about that. You know, I talked to him about, you know, kind of how he did that job and, you know, and, and you know, knowing that he was taking lives and said, you know, quite honestly, I just didn't think of them as, you know, human. I thought of them as an enemy force. And that was it. Once you give them their humanity, you start to think too much about killing. And when you do that, you know, you lose all your effectiveness as a Marine. So. Um, you know, it kind of brings a humanizing side, uh, showing the other side, what the Japanese were thinking and, you know, in that perspective. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a great movie. I, I think I remember there was a scene where the Japanese had pretty much accepted that they'd lost and the Marines were like entering like the, these bunkers and the Japanese were just like huddling together and, and pulling pins from grenades. You know, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, man, it's wild, too, because that culture is so different, you know, and, and, you know, not give my whole project away, but, you know, I have a feeling people will still read. But Woody talked about that, too, and how, you know, there's just a different mindset. And his first, you know, battles were on Guam, so they were working through the jungles. And it, it was really some of our, you know, the early stages, you know, of um, jungle combat for the Marines. And so he talked about battling on Guam and how guys would tie themselves up in trees and literally just like let go of the rope with, you know, and, and just, you know, f fall from the rope with a sam samurai sword on the off chance that they might catch a Marine, but they're like 30 feet up. So they, That's you know, crazy. like break their, both their legs, you know, on landing, knowing they were basically going to die. So he just talked about the culture and how death was one of, you know, d dying was glory. You know, right. and for Marines, it's like, dude, we wanted to live as long as possible. We're not yeah. trying to die. You know, like we want to, you know, we might be devil dogs and everything, but we're, too, you know, we still have a high value for American for 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 human life, you know. And so the the Japanese were just, you know, that it was to to die was gain for them. You know, it was like a, a glorious thing. So, you know, and what he was like you know, how, how do you, it's so hard to fight an enemy that, that lives to die, you know, that would be, that would really be an interesting, um, you know, study or, or just, you know, book listening to those combatants of ours who have fought against the Japanese who are willing to die versus the Germans who had a little bit more, uh, idea of self-preservation, you know, taking it through Korea and Vietnam to even the battles today that we have with uh, with terrorism and, and also that same type of, you know, suicide mindset and glory where, 
you know, you, you have to just keep plugging away until they drop, uh, because, because their end state goal is to die and take you out versus others who might say, well, yeah, it looks pretty futile here. So, uh, you know, bring us to the camp, give us something to to eat and some, you know, some new clean socks. Yeah. And, you know, JT, that's a really good point because, you know, I, I interviewed, you know, this is my second and third Iwo Jima, you know, interviews where I've spent the day with Iwo Jima veteran. And they've told me that, the percentage of surrendering Japanese was almost next to none. Yeah. Like to catch, to actually catch a Japanese soldier was like the most rare thing in the world. In fact, Paul Merriman, who was my first Iwo Jima veteran I interviewed from fifth Marine division, it told me like they caught a Japanese soldier and the Marines like didn't know what to do. They were so excited because they had never been able to catch one. It was said it was like a rare animal. Like they, right. they had him in the ground, like buried up to his neck <laughs> and, and like they, he was trying to get him to hand them a cigarette. And they were like, we honestly thought like, even if we hand this guy a cigarette, he's probably going to try to kill us with the burning end of the cigarette. Like <laughs> he's going to do anything to kill us. So they literally hand him a cigarette. They light it. As soon as they light it, he tries to spit it on him. Like, you know, he said like, there was no dying to this guy's fight. Like he said, like the person, and I can't remember the official statistics, but it was, um, I mean, it was, shockingly low on the amount of Japanese that surrendered. So that would be a very interesting study um, because I know the Germans definitely surrendered a lot more easily than the, than the Japanese did. Yeah. And it would, it would seem also from, you know, kind of a, a training and doctrine standpoint. I mean, I know we often look back in history, you know, with hindsight, but even as we, you know, sent our troops over to the Middle East, I suspect that there was never once that they brought in some old World War II, you know, Islander fighters uh, to to give some idea of the mindset of someone who is willing to to suicide themselves uh, to prepare some of our own folks. Uh, but, I, you know. I just got chills, you, you mentioning that, because that was one of the things that Woody talked about. He was saying how fanatical the 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 men we're fighting are now he was talking about that he's like in a lot of ways the fanatical mindset of our enemy now resembles that of the japanese i was fighting yeah so that's an interesting that's a very interesting point because i read the i think maybe some of those you know that that was a religious kind of mindset you know where that was that was ingrained deeply you know of, of fighting for state and maybe not so religious, maybe more feudal, you know, and, you know, it's kind of the samurai mindset, right. but a part of that dug itself into religion. So I've got to think that those Japanese, if there were any that were left living, and I'm sure there are, um, that they would definitely be able to, to uh, help us with that. And I'm sure some of them would actually be willing you know, to sit down and talk. Well, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's interesting because the Japanese, you know, as as you know, they uh, for a long time it was a very warrior culture. You know, with the samurai, and they had like their sort of um, codes of chivalry, or you know, they call it like bushido. You know, and it's like right. all these different like ways of of looking at kind of death and and dishonor and honor and and that sort of thing, and. Um, <clears throat> For a while, they were very pacifist. Now they are as well. But uh, I think it was in the early 1900s, um, whoever was 
sort of running the country at the time, they had re- reintroduced this idea of uh, Bushido and, and some of the um, some of the writings of the samurai from the 16th and 17th century uh, into Japan, and it, it became kind of a required reading. And they they were kind of building themselves up to to get to that sort of imperialistic uh, state, and and um, and then you know even before. Uh, World War Two, you know, they were in China and 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 they were kind of really committing atrocities there and, and other parts of of Asia, Southeast Asia. So it, it's kind of interesting because the the mindset of of that you know that kamikaze style, you know, willing to kill themselves, or today, you know, the suicide bombers and stuff like that. It's really linked to an old way of thinking. I think on both ends, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean definitely is and i think that you know to the samurai is obviously to the point where you know even in the dishonor of you know losing a battle or something we commit harry carry and you know disembowel themselves um you know i think that it's it's very interesting looking at the link between that kind of you know ideology tied to some higher power you know not individuality but some higher you know, power, which links itself to this almost, you know, suicidal mindset where you're willing to do anything and everything for the possibility of victory and to die, um, you know, to surrender is, you know, the ultimate dishonor. And, you know, it's just interesting to see those links, you know, kind of play themselves out through history and how we go in cycles where, you know, some, like you mentioned, Japan's not always like that, you know, but but sometimes when they're, you know, they've obviously gone in cycles where that's been kind of accepted, you know, as part of the mindset. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, obviously there are some differences between, like, let's say an ISIS or, you know, Japanese or whatever, Uh, especially if you look at, like you were mentioning earlier, the rate at which American forces forces were capturing Japanese soldiers uh, during World War II versus today. I believe they do capture a lot more, um, you know, of, of these so-called terrorists and, and um, you know, people who are operating under that sort of banner. Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't know, like, if you could find out why that in particular was, but I think a lot of it is probably because terrorism just being tied to kind of a you know, a, a, a poor culture with a lack of education where there's, you know, a lot of these guys that were fighting overseas are not as fanatical. They might just be, you know, Farmer John, who's, you know, out on his farm and then one day is offered a, you know, thousand dollars or something by, or we won't kill your family if you attack American forces, right. as opposed to a mindset of where the Japanese were highly educated and it was all for a system. It was all for, you know, for the empire, uh, you know, whereas with a lot of these ISIS fighters, some are fanatical. Um, but, you know, quite honestly, a lot of them are, um, you know, are, are you know, spineless cowards um, right. who don't have a greater system or basis of belief in in you know and if they get a chance to surrender they will so it's interesting i i don't know why that is but i've got to think that terrorism being linked to a lack of education 
and a real lack of understanding when it comes down to it and you got a gun in your face you're going wait what do i believe again you know like um well i think i think some of it you know as you say is built on you know social cultural history uh, of what they have learned and what they have had to deal with in the region but a lot of the mobilization to the call of violence um, by a lot of the jihadis has been based on messaging and based mm. on things that they have recently seen. So to a certain degree, it isn't as ingrained as it might have been for the Japanese um, because you've got kind of a, a couple sublayers of this type of call to action, uh, whether it's mediated messages, whether it's you know things that they have seen, whether it is you know, other things that, that they've recognized on television or even their teachings. So I think that at times um, you can shift that perception a little bit easier because it isn't quite as deep. And I think sometimes if you get into the real foundations of, of Islam or even some of their culture, um, they are a lot more accepting. So I think in, in, in many instances of who we're fighting, uh, where you may have, you know, cowardice or what we might, you know, consider cowardice. It just may be that we were able to take off a couple of those layers of uh, that belief call to action. And I think, you know, my my own perception on this on the intel side is that I think that we could be doing a lot more on the messaging side, on the psychological side to change, um, you know, that belief system and mindset a, a little bit more and, and you know, kind of shape that battle space. Right. Uh, because it isn't as ingrained as it is in some other cultures. So so I think you can, you know, make some changes. Right. And I, I think, you know, that's an interesting point that you bring up. And I've talked to, I think particularly um, Green Berets kind of feel this kind of way or, or, or kind of agree with, with, you know, the sentiment of what you just said. And I think when you look at um, how quickly ISIS grew and how many foreign fighters or, or women they had, uh, you know, and it was through like so literally social media marketing. And at the time, uh, a friend of mine, he's a, a longtime special forces uh, guy, and he was talking about, you know, he's not sure why the, the you know, the, the U.S. government isn't on social media countering them, you know, like very actively, you know, and I, I think that's just an interesting point you bring up. Yeah. You know, a lot of it has to do also with, um, you know, how we fund things and how we justify uh, our existence in places. And and more often than not, um, you can tabulate body count a lot easier as a success than you can in changing hearts and minds. Right. So I think that while we may be active in doing those things, uh, still, if you are able to demonize uh, people as an enemy, it's a lot easier to show people that we're winning through, you know, the people that have surrendered and the people that we've killed as opposed to, you know, those who have laid down arms or just kind of, you know, let us pass through with, with no, with no event. You know, JT, you, you pointed out something, you know, on the, on the last recording that we, you know, ended up not getting there, but you were talking your, about your background a little bit. Um, and you talked about South Chicago, correct? So you were there for a little bit. Yeah, I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. Okay. Uh, so my, my dad was actually born in Gary. I don't know if you're familiar with Gary. <laughs> I'm very familiar with Gary, yeah. Yeah, that's where my dad's from. So, um, But South Chicago, I mean, as far as, you know, you talk about, you know, hearts, minds, and, 
educational aspects and, you know, ideologies. And, you know, I, I mean, how much of that type of, you know, being in that environment really, you know, impacted you going into your future roles and, in, in, you know, and, you know, you know, the battle against terrorism and understanding that kind of how mindset impacts an individual and the culture impacts an individual. How much did that help you? Well, I would say I'll, I'll make a distinction because any Chicago Southsider here is going to have a, a real um, issue with, with how I'm portraying it. So there's Chicago right. Southside. Um, which is going to be, you know, initially kind of going, if you're taking, you know, your loop and moving south, you know, you've got your Chinese neighborhoods, you've got your um, uh, Italian and Irish neighborhoods, and you're kind of continuing to work your way, and you've got some Hispanic, some African-American, you know, from an ethnicity standpoint, and then down, and then that line kind of stops on the uh, city outskirts, and then you get into south suburbs, now, they're not as glamorous, certainly, in some of those segue parts. Um, I was born in Harvey, uh, okay. which is a, a pretty pretty uh, tough area right now. But I was gone by the time I was, you know, maybe three years old. And then I was in the south suburbs. Um, and in the area that I grew up, it was really, um, well, it was a developing area. And so... I went to um, I went to a high school that was probably one of the better ones in the state, even. Uh, so I, I didn't I didn't grow up with any hardship necessarily. I mean, there were some times when you know the the city shut down a lot of um, projects and and they forced a lot of individuals south. And then there was a lot of family who lived there, so they could bring cousins down. You know, aunts and uncles were there, and they're like, you know, bring the kids down here. You get a great education. So we did have a, a real quick flood of of gangs from the Hispanic side and African American side. And so even you know myself as just a you know a, a white you know white kid in that area who would you know middle class. Um, I, I don't, it's too strong to say to survive, but right. to not get picked on. You had to pick a side, and it was either uh, Latin kings or disciple gangsters, and and then you just kind of figured yourself out because you needed a little bit of protection from from one or two of the others. Um, I think that though, what really shaped me probably in more of the social cultural side and on the intelligence front was had a lot more to do with my neighborhood. Um, my neighborhood was really diverse. We had a lot of World War II uh, survivors uh, from the Holocaust that were um, Jewish. Oh, so, wow. uh, so we had, um, you know, I, 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 I in one of my, in the, my first book that I wrote that was independently published uh, fiction, but I, you know, I took a lot from my life. I remember trick or treating with this one and going to this one house, and I remember the one woman as she would put candy in our our lanterns. Um, she still had the tattoo on her wrist. Wow. Um, I had in my my next next door to us, we had Koreans, we had uh, Israelis, you know, from Israel. Uh, we had Pakistanis. Um, it was just really so diverse. And, and my parents were, you know, a little bit more culturally astute than maybe some others in that neighborhood or were open to it. So I remember we even had some like international nights at our house where People would come in their traditional garb and uh, and bring their food and and my parents loved that type nice. of thing. So so we always had a little bit of that and so I, I think I, I 
you know, was kind of brought up with somewhat of a cultural understanding and appreciation. And I'd say that probably more than just where I was living uh, from, you know, that Chicago perspective had a, had a lot to do with, with what happened in the future. Right. So, but I was speaking more to the operational side. So you were on, you were in operations in South, South Chicago, right? You were working as an officer there? No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, okay. So gotcha. I, I mean, there was, I gotta be careful on this one too. Um, <laughs> the, there, there was a, there was a project that I was involved with because of my DOD ties okay. that involved us setting up human networks for, um, one of the, uh, the, um, uh, the minors, you know, in the, the, uh, juvenile detention areas. So we could okay. be, we set up the program so we could be a safe haven where they had to come back in and check in. And, uh, that was where we could run our sources, uh, safely and, and build the program. So I will say that based on what I was doing for the government and military, it dovetailed back into what I was able to support for a while here in Chicago. Okay. Makes sense. So, so JT, um, you know, kind of touching on your background, can we, can we kind of walk through your career a little bit? Um, you know, as you worked in the intelligence world and, and, you know, maybe talk about as much as you can or you're willing to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, you know, there's some certain sensitivities, but by and large I can, you know, talk about some of the things that we did. I, ironically, the way that this uh, conversation had kicked off with World War II, I'll say that, you know, I had a, um, uh, a, a great, you know, great cousin. So it was my dad's cousin uh, who was a World War II veteran, Iwo Jima, Marine. His name was uh, Floyd Croy. And uh, he never talked about it. Um, oh. and, and when I was looking to go into college, um, I had been shooting with a police department on their rifle team. Uh, I'd been trained by a uh, guy, Detective Doug Schultz, who was a, a Vietnam Marine sniper. And uh, he was a real good mentor to me at the time. And so as I was thinking about what I wanted to do in college, I knew I wanted to continue shooting. I knew I wanted an ROTC program. I wanted international business. I wanted study abroad. Um, I remember Doug trying to shape me in certain directions, tell me you know, what to do, what not to do. He was trying to push me away from uh, military. And then uh, Floyd, who was, uh, he stood about six foot six, and uh, he was just, just a, a, a bear of a guy. Um, and as I said, he had never talked to anybody about, about what he experienced on the islands. And my dad, who was a Vietnam veteran, had said that at one point, Somebody had come to their house. Floyd, Floyd stayed with them after the war, um, had brought medals, and, and Floyd threw them out. Uh, he just never wanted to talk about anything. And I remember once I had decided on a, a college and decided to go into the program, uh, my parents were gone, and Floyd sat me down, and we we're talking. He goes, you know, stay away from the, from the military. Um, he says, it's just, it's just you know, they're going to you know, use you up, spit you out. And then we started talking about um, the islands, and he had told me about how he had fallen into a foxhole, and uh, there was an enemy combatant uh, right in there. And, uh, you know, as you know by many of the tales of, of the, the Marines who are fighting in the islands, I mean, it was foot by foot, um, you're fighting hand to hand. And mm -hmm. in this case, obviously, Floyd uh, emerged as the one who was living, but uh, he was just telling me, he says, you know, war will change you. And 
at that time, it was probably the worst thing that he could have said. It was probably the worst thing that uh, Doug could have said to me because when I, you know, w- when I went to college, I-, I wanted more than ever than to look at the at the uh, the military, and so I joined uh, ROTC, and uh, I was probably the biggest disaster at Illinois State University that ROTC had ever seen. <laughs> I I had no discipline. Um, I had been, you know, in kind of a, a sheltered household, so I wanted to go out all night. I think the first thing that I did, you know, that first week on college campus was pierce my ear, and uh, and that and my hair was getting longer. And that was about the worst thing that the that I could have done walking in with the cadre in ROTC. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you guys a story later about it, but nonetheless, it didn't work out for me. Um, I was in a career day. I had met um, someone from the FBI and from the CIA, and I stayed in touch with the individual from the agency who, after I even graduated, um, they were looking for Russian linguists, uh, Chinese linguists. And at the time, I was studying French, Spanish, and Arabic, and they said, you know, no, neither one of them are going to invade the U.S. or are we there we going to be doing battle with. So we don't have much interest in French or Arabic. Uh, obviously, later on, that was interesting because I ended up working in North Africa and speaking both French and Arabic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, hindsight being 2020. Um, and so uh, but this guy, Jerry, uh, in time had introduced me to an individual who was a friend of his and uh, they were doing some uh, science and technology, uh, economic espionage prevention in the U.S. Um, because some of the commercial work I was doing, thought that could be interesting. Uh, a guy that he had introduced me to happened to be named uh, Dewey Claridge um, that, that we know has some some lore to him. But at the time, I didn't know, you know, his name was just Dewey. Um, I ended up working for some DIA guys uh, who had gotten out, uh, received my training from them and a number of others, um, and stayed in the commercial space. I was largely doing, you know, um, financial type work. I had been doing some recruiting. And um, when 9-11 happened, I remember I was working for uh, one of the big four public accounting firms. I was in the Sears Tower, and I got, I'd been, I'd, I was married at the time. And um I remember, well, I was in the building and, you know, my wife's calling. She says, where are you? What are you doing? She says, you know, planes are coming and people were trying to evacuate. And I thought it was just another, um, you know, World Trade Center type uh, bombing when they had talked about that. I didn't realize what had actually happened. But I remember, you know, finally getting back to our condo in the city and uh, and sitting down as, you know, the the buildings were falling. And, uh, and I told my wife, I said, I, I want to make a call. And, uh, and I called up, you know, some folks and said, you know, get me in. Um, I still ended up doing some commercial work while things were getting up and going. But then I was I was brought into the community. Um, my work in understanding finance, understanding how to build companies, understand how to recruit people, uh, led itself very nicely to what what I was being asked to do. Um, through those introductions, I was brought to a, um, a Delta plank holder had made it, I I did some work with him and he made an introduction to me into the SOCOM J2. And I'd say from there, it just kind of, you know, kind of blew up of, uh, as far as my involvement, uh, getting into more intelligence focus 
And um, at that point, a lot of what I'd been doing lent itself very nicely to um, irregular warfare uh, type activities and unconventional warfare of what we were going to do, how we were going to stop money, how we were going to hunt money, how we were going to set up front companies and uh, even make honeypots online and things like that. And so these were things that I was able to just kind of reverse engineer and then take into the operational intelligence community. So it brought me into, you know, pretty much all of the the, the gray and dark spaces uh, very quickly. And, um, and that's how really most of my career on the intelligence side um, kind of developed. So it went anywhere from covert messaging to um, covert covers. Um, it was doing uh, intelligence support for area studies, um, planning, um, you know, type of logistical creativity for certain things. And then I was brought in um, pretty early stage for the IED um, countering. And this was before JIDO or anything. Uh, the agency had asked me to do some work and I had developed, um, I'd, I shouldn't say I developed, I built on a number of, of systems and systems of systems to help map out uh, the IED network using either social, cultural nuances and figuring out how supply chains work and I think that's how I really got my foot in the door in a lot of different places, too, is they figured out if we can kind of expand networks and create creative ways to destroy networks from within, um, we would call it, you know, with a virus, you know, a viral or a lytic cycle to destroy those things. And you could either use it from active direct action targeting or by, you know, message disruption, whether it was just pushed out or whether it was just whispers in, you know, souks and things like that. So that gives you, I think, kind of a kind of a gist of things. Right. And um, how long were you working um, in, in that type of role? Uh, you know, I've I've gone in and out depending on contracts, logistics. I mean, everything was was going gangbusters up until. Oh, when was the big sequestration and cutbacks? Probably was it 2012 or something like that, or um, just like everything just kind of shut down. And then just through uh, periodic involvement, I get brought back into the fold. So even like last night, I I just had a call from an old uh, special forces colonel who was was my boss at one time, and he was telling me about some things that he was doing in. Southeast Asia and, you know, needed some help. So, you know, we're off to the races again. Um, so I, I get pulled back and forth, keep my ties in the community. So every now and then when there's kind of a wicked problem set, um, I just get some random calls or texts of when can you be out in Tampa? When can you be out in DC or Bragg? And, you know, then we just start off for a little bit. Nice. So that stuff's so cool. Like it's the most like, yeah, vague job descriptions ever. <laughs> You're like, hey, will you show up. I always picture like the guy with the handkerchief in his. Spot. I'm gonna be wearing a red handkerchief at this bar, and like I'll tap you on the shoulder, and you come outside and jump in my rolls, and then from there we'll transfer into '96 Toyota Corolla. Yeah, the rest of the way. We're gonna, well, you know, we're gonna... <laughs> I'll tell you, it's 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 a lot less cool on my end. And if you ever saw that movie, uh, The Trader, um. And and I, I just was talking to Jack Murphy about this on his show, and I, I again forgot the names. Uh, Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle, and, yeah, 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 yeah. 
and I can't remember who the other guy was, Bridges maybe or someone. But anyway, there's a scene where he's running this asset and he's out in the suburbs of D.C. And he's got, you know, his the grocery groceries in the car and the kids are yelling and, and stuff like that. And I'd say that that's a little bit more of my picture is, <laughs> you know, somebody is is actually in the in the grind needing something and I'm, you know, maybe barbecuing with family or having to take the kids to a sports match or something like that. So it's, yeah, I can't talk right now. I'll have to call you back, but, uh, it's, it's a lot less cloak and dagger and more just, you know, help us think through something that we're not used to having to think through. See, that's awesome. But I would like to think of it the other way and then I would join (laughs) up and then I would join up and I would be like, wait a second. Well, there, I'll tell you, there was a time when I, I think it kind of got to my ego because I saw some pictures of me, I don't know, maybe like three years back where I, I'd be wearing like, you know, 5'11 pants and, you know, <laughs> Oakley boots and, and this and that. And I'm in the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> you know, how stupid is that? <laughs> you know, I'm at home for Christmas. Everybody else that's on my team is, you know, is, is abroad, but, uh, you know, God dang it, I'm wearing my Oakleys. (laughs) (laughs) So how does one get into that crew field? I mean, can you you take us through that a little bit? Because I I know that, you know, it's probably not just, you know, you don't just show up one day and they're like, oh, you scored really well on tests in college, so we're going to make you an intelligence. I mean, there's there's obviously a path into that. So, you know, you get recruited by certain agencies and then you've got to go through their schools, you know, and all that, or how, how does that work exactly? You know, there's, there's probably a more formal approach. Well, I know there is a more formal approach now to how that goes down and there always has been, but there was such a scramble after nine 11, um, that I think they were sweeping for pretty much anybody. I mean, I, I, can't tell you the amount of phone calls and meetings that I was in. And, and I'm talking like not, you know, two or three people where I, I I'm rubbing elbows with these guys, but you know, larger type meetings, but there are guys in there like Kofor black, Billy wall. And, uh, I mean, a lot of real legendary folks, um, who, who'd served the community for a long time. And then thereafter that I'd be brought into, um, to, you know, share some tips or just to listen in and, and see what the next phase is of something. And, uh, and I think it was just kind of dredging what people could get. And I think also that at the time, um, there, you know, there's a group called in the, I, I think that it's, it's public. So I think I can say that in, within the department of defense, there's a group Tiswig, um, and and there's they're kind of a specialist group, and I remember at the time they were they were really looking for a lot of old OSS material. So you know we talked there at the beginning of the show about you know did anybody ever talk to anyone from the Marines in, in the islands? Well, what we were looking to do in in with the uh, kind of the Middle East wars was reinvigorate what we were doing, and so there was a big push to go back into. OSS archives. And I don't know what happened, but for some reason, you know, maybe two years before that, uh, in some work that I was doing, I was researching some programs, trying to come up with some training, and I pulled up this massive archive of this. So, you know, just by happenstance, one time somebody had said something about the OSS, 
and trying to figure out some files. And I kind of raised my hand and they're like, you know, who's a dork in the corner? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I've got files and files and files and hard drives of this stuff. What do you guys need? And, you know, I just got plugged in. Um, nice. So I think that for me, it was a lot more of just just being at the right place at the right time. And, um, and, and because of the, the surge need at, at that point, I mean, this was also, you know, when I was initially pulled in, even in 99 to some start in the nineties to some things that was at a time where there was uh, not as much oversight into procurement either. So you had a lot of these ex case officers, um, ex soft guys, that were running around building their consulting companies, building their building their training companies. It was easy to get clearances. It was easy to get contracts. Um, it was the buddy network. So I I was in you know being in Chicago. I had gotten a chance to meet um, General David Grange, and had gotten to be close with him. And so there for a time when he was involved with some projects, I'd get pulled into some things that Grange was doing, and then you know by affiliation with him in some cases, someone assumes, all right, well, you're good and vetted. And then that kind of spreads and you go to the next person. And before you know it, you know, you're, you're kind of a fixture for whatever niche that you're providing in the, in the community. Yeah. So, um, JT, in addition to, you know, the, the intelligence work and, and, and some of that stuff that you've, you've done and, and continue to do, you also write novels as well. Uh, can we talk about some of that? Yeah, that would be um, <laughs> that could be good too. Yeah. Um, that um, I think that the the novels came out of that that time when sequestration hit, and I was no longer spending my time in you know on the East Coast. Um, I was back in Chicago. I think at the time I was even jobless, and I I, I missed. Um, I miss the mission. And so I, I was reading a lot of books. Um, I enjoy espionage and military thrillers. I was helping a, uh, an author from time to time uh, with some creativity. And um, it was at one point proposed to me, you know, hey, why don't you, why don't you try this? And, and I jumped at it. I figured, yeah, why not? You know, I've got some time on my hands. I enjoyed writing it. And I think what Initially, I knew that there were still some guys overseas, and I thought that you know a lot of a lot of the the, the guys in the units that I had been working with, and even some of the intelligence folks, they they did enjoy you know reading books on their in their spare time, um, or the downtime out there. And so I thought you know maybe I could write something that would be very realistic, and um, that they would appreciate a little bit more. And I had no intentions of publishing it, and I had no understanding because I, I did remember there's a couple things that happened. Um, Dalton Fury had come out with some books, and yeah. I had I I knew Tom uh, through some other individuals, and so I spoke to him, and he talked about how really for a time he was you know getting PNG'd because of of writing what he had on the nonfiction side, right? And, with the, with the, uh, some of the Torah Boy stuff as well, I'm sure. Yeah. And then uh, I was in, I was at the unit, and I, sometimes I can't remember if I'm making it up, if I really saw it, or if I thought that I saw it. But I know that there was definitely conversation about uh, Jerry Boykin uh, for his book, and 
and how you know they were pissed off with that, and I can't remember if they took down his picture. We're talking about it, whatever. Oh, I, I could imagine <laughs> as well, yeah. But but I but I had just written an article for the army with Jerry, and yeah. it was on um, operationalizing intelligence, and I was thinking, oh shit, you know, is this going to come back and haunt me? So I figured I'm not publishing anything, and I, I figured I'd look up you know what was required of it, and you know blah blah blah. Well. I kicked off the one book. I did figure out what I needed to do for um, pre-publication review, and I wanted to make sure that I kept that as, as, as my own. I didn't want to give it to lawyers. I didn't want to give it to publishers because I wanted to make sure I did it the right way and that everything was kind of scrubbed. Um, and then that turned into a second book. And I just really enjoyed – I think that was kind of my um, my outlet for feeling still connected and, um, and, and then I just enjoyed doing it. And so I wrote about, I guess, kind of a guy, you know, maybe one tenth of, of who I am, of, um, you know, how I had kind of an unconventional way into the intelligence community. But I mean, obviously this guy was an operator, so he was doing a lot more things than, than I would have ever done or could have ever done. But I show, I shared a lot of personal anecdotes in it to create the story and I shaped it in Chicago, et cetera. Um, and so again, I thought that it was kind of also another way for me to, you know, fantasize of what, what would have been if I hadn't screwed some things up and, you know, could have gone with certain, uh, military elements and, and things like that. And then, uh, more recently, um, a, a company had reached out to me and said they wanted to publish what I was writing. They liked how I was authentic. They liked how it was very dark. Um, they liked how it was a little bit more truthful in how war may actually be or some of the mindset and mentality and the the uh, the issues that people have while they're still having to go to battle um and so i created a new series that was called task force orange series follows a guy by the name of drake wolf who is um part of the uh, intelligence support activity and that's a you know highly secretive unit under various names uh, part of jsoc had come from the army and uh, I like that because it was a little bit closer to me and my knowledge base dealing with everything from, you know, financial markets to intelligence collection, signals intelligence, you know, electronics and cyber aspects, um, you know, the advanced force operations and, and setting things up. And so I thought that would be really fun. Plus, I was never read into any of those programs. So I thought that was also a little bit safer. Um, but of course I, you know, I was wrong because I just didn't think about the fact that I'd still have to have my oversight from DOD, CIA and NSA. And, uh, so, you know, as, as everybody's got their finger in it, I, you know, it's the right thing. They're, they're reviewing it, but, uh, it goes through a lot of scrutiny before these, these come out. So right. that's, that's what I've been doing. And I think that they still hold true to what I like to write and a little bit of the mindset of what I brought to the intelligence community that I'm kind of sharing in some of these books as things, not being preachy, but I mean, it's, it's what I embrace is what I think is important for intelligence operators and that connection between Intel and ops. JT, first of all, Drake Wolf, most agency name ever. I think <laughs> like <laughs> Drake Wolf. I just, and then when you were talking about some of those guys getting PNG, I just pictured rooms of like, 
people's faces on walls and guys just, just walking, <laughs> like reading the book and like shaking their head and then knocking that picture off the wall. <laughs> guys, he's no longer one of us anymore. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, there was, there was another guy who was working at SOCOM and he had, he had spent time with the agency and, and I was in the J2 one day um, in, in that, in that, you know, uh, that grouping. Um, and I remember a time somebody had pulled up and they said something about this guy. And I said something about, yeah, you know, he's got a pretty good book out. And they said, what? <laughs> and, and before you knew it, it was like going from cube to cube to cube to cube. And then everybody's like looking up and saying, holy shit, this guy should not have been writing anything. And it turns out that he hadn't turned anything to pre-publication review. Oh, man. And it was just a shit Dude, show. Dude, you just ratted that guy <laughs> out. Oh, my God. We got a so, snitch on our hands, John. <laughs> right? You know, I'm like, I am definitely the dumbest guy in the room sometimes. <laughs> you see helicopters just taking off from behind the building. Like, you're like, oh, man. Got but a way I mean, bigger stir than I thought. <laughs> at least that's, you know, that's like not one asshole that's selling more books than me, so. <laughs> <laughs> There was a um, I, I, oh, I'm forgetting dude. the name. Uh, it was a book that came out like maybe two or three years ago, and it was like it had a focus on like some updates on what JSOC was doing in and I think in Somalia, and then it talked. I believe it talked about the ISA, uh, um, as you just mentioned, and and some of the other like special intelligence uh, task groups and stuff like that. R- Sean Naylor's Relentless Strike. Yeah, maybe? there you go. Right. Yep. Yeah, and I've had so much like literally all of this like paralyzes me with fear. Like I would I don't think if I had a career that I'd be able to write a book just because I'd be like so nervous about pissing somebody off in yeah. some organizations like there's so much oversight that goes into. I mean, you're, you're working through like 10 different layers. You know, I just picture like, well, if I don't piss off somebody, I'm going to piss off that person down the hall, you know, like always. Like you've got so much oversight going into that procedure. I mean, was that is that just like a really tough thing? Because there are obviously a lot of things you can't mention, you can't get too specific about certain. I mean, that's got to be a whole different level of writing. Like that's very, that seems very complex. You know, it is. Um, but but here's here's something that I'm learning more and more. Um, I think initially I, I, it was very frustrating and difficult because I was trying to make it as realistic as I could, but I didn't, I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't disclosing anything inappropriate. Um, but the more that I read and the more that I talked to authors and editors, publishers, they real and, and readers for that matter, they didn't like to get bogged down into all the details and they were really more interested in in the story and, and then the, and the characters. And I think that was really pretty liberating for me um, because I felt that I never, I didn't need to spend as much time getting into, you know, something that could be potentially a a classified trade craft. So for example, last night I was writing um, this, this third book, this manuscript that I'm working on. And there was a part where, the guy's supposed to go for a meet and greet outside of Fort Bragg at a hotel. And so he's just, he hasn't had any, you know, bumps or anything that you would think is, you know, quote unquote trade craft that we see on TV and stuff. 
and uh, or having any you know real fancy dead drops in certain places. All this guy was doing is walking up the back um, the back sidewalk, and he counted the number of of squares on the sidewalk. And at the third one, he reached down to the crack of the sidewalk where the rocks met, and there was a um, a hotel card, and on it, you know, written in pencil, was the hotel room. Licked his thumb, wiped it off, swiped himself in, destroyed the card, and uh, and he was going. Now, is that anything that is going to be disclosed? No. But I think it was kind of, you know, it's just an interesting tidbit of espionage or the spy craft that you can put in there that's still going to give the same look and feel as if you did something that was um, a little bit more sensitive to disclose. Yeah. So I think that's that's something I've been able to do a little bit easier um, with this character, Drake. Um, it's more about, you know, his personality, how he was kind of a, you know, as a kid, he, he had a, a situation that happened. But he also had some challenges with, you know, mental stability um, and, and processing and things like that and, and how he saw the world. And then when this happened, it shows how he was able to kind of hide that and continue into the service and then how war continued to transform him, but also distorted some of those things that he had. So now what I've got is I've got a, a really um, uh, vulnerable character. I think that people can see, and I think they're more interested in him than the bells and whistles technology that he's using. Now, that being said, um, because of the Snowden releases of so many NSA files, there's some things that I just don't know about as far as databases and, and technologies that I, I wanted to research. And as I'm going through open source research to figure out, okay, what could I put in here that seems kind of realistic, that seems to marry up with what I would know? I put some of that content in there. And then when I submit it to review, they're saying, yeah, this is maybe out in public release, but this is still classified. So Snowden really uh, did a hell of a job because there's a lot of content that is out there um, that you just may not realize um, is classified when, in fact, it actually is. So that that's what kind of, you know, when I see that happen, that's kind of a frustration. But for me to change the name of something that nobody knows is a code word anyway, it just goes over people's head. I'm, you know. Right. right. Well, it's, it's interesting. And I think even with um, like with social media and and all these media platforms like podcasts and stuff like that, I think it really kind of changed the game a little bit for people who are coming out of that sort of classified community. And um, I mean, I've even done podcasts with guys and after the podcast had gone up, you know, I'm talking to him and he's like, yeah, um, you know, my old commander at my unit is calling me off calling me up and he's pissed off about the podcast and you know it's just really crazy and i think even like looking at some of our allies like the um the british in particular um <clears throat> i'd done a podcast with a, a, a guy who was a, a veteran of the british uh military and he had counter intel from his old unit contact him and kind of grill him on on the podcast i guess he didn't let him know ahead of time so I, I think it's really kind of an interesting dynamic what social media and, and all these other forms of media kind of do to the way the, the, the governments look at, you know, trying to keep classified information classified, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I've had that stuff happen with uh, some of my projects. You know, guys that have oh, yeah, you know, yeah. asked certain questions. I mean, where they've asked, where they've answered honestly, but or you know, but it's just something that's not technically like you can talk about it, but it's just lo- frowned upon by certain teams and groups, right. you know. And then you know, I end up getting some email from some you know angry, you know. Mm-hmm former you know or you know present day operator or soldier and it's yeah. like hey <laughs> uh, you need to take you know you need to i'm like dude i'm just a messenger man I'll, you yeah. know if this really has to go i'll get rid of it trust me like i'm not you know i'm scared i'm like looking out my window like you know like <laughs> <laughs> like you know i i just so it's interesting how that works man it's like uh I, i'm sure there's a lot in your, you know, in your experience where it's not technically, you, you can mention it, but it's kind of frowned upon. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, I experienced that with my first task force orange book called buried in black. Um, because what I, what I dealt with in this, in that book was what if the Iraqis that we trained, um, and had promised asylum, you know, did not receive that asylum, did not get the green cards, did not get citizenship, were left, and families were slaughtered. And then what if somebody came around, and like we're talking about early, uh, used some type of messaging and, and shaping of their beliefs based on that situation and said, what if you wanted, what if you wanted to get back at, uh, at the people who left you? What if you could get back at the Americans now that your family is wiped out, they broke your promises? And I mean, that's not too different from what has happened, um, aside from the fact that nobody's brought them over here yet. Um, and so those, those individuals on the project were called the Mohawks. And that's not a, it's not a classified term and it was not classified in how it was used. I, as I said, went through DOD, went through CIA, went through NSA, nobody flagged it, but I got my share of, of calls from people saying, dude, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have said that. Well, mm. again, that, it's kind of like, uh, not too long ago when Trump took a picture with the seals, I, I don't remember what team it was. Well, they're like, that's, Iraq, that's a classified photo. You can't yeah. do that. Well, yeah, you can because that was an overt situation. All right. So all right. I think sometimes, you know, yes, I'm all about OPSEC. I mean, even in my professional business now, I'm dealing with cybersecurity and insider threats. Uh, there are some things that people think is, is sensitive, but it, it's really not. And, uh, and those things can be, you know, played with a little bit. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so JT, can you talk about, um, you know, some of like the deep state stuff and then maybe if you can talk about some of the, the type of work that you, type of consulting work that you're you're doing or, or that you, you offer? No, John, they'll kill me. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to be super paranoid after this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Like everybody's walking out of their... Like, like exiting their car, like rolling under yeah, vehicles right. nearby, and like before you go into your house, doors. <laughs> you, you got to circle the block twice and make sure you're not being followed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, dude, I'll that car it, in front of your that car in front of your house was your grandma's, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Circling back like five times for an hour, <laughs> right? Well, you know, it it does it does. Um, 
it does leave you to wonder a lot, especially if you are in some of those environments where really the projects and programs that you're involved with, you don't know if they were fully sanctioned. And I think that's sometimes the the most difficult or scary thing is knowing, is this part of somebody else's agenda? And I think that's probably the biggest danger that I see in you know deep state type narratives is not so much that there's a big orchestrated element uh, that is that is masterminding things. I think that more often than not, what occurs in what we would term as the deep state happens to be um, people of influence or power in those pockets um, are shaping things based on the narrative that they want to create and things that they want to have happened, things that they believe in. Um, I think oftentimes those are um, – I think sometimes they're they're very well meaning in in what they what they want to do. Sometimes we put a label of patriotic to justify things, but I think that more often than not, many things that happen based on on what I've seen, which seems like you know, okay, this is a great idea, and then something comes about to really jack things up, um, and that ripple effect makes it greater than anything that anyone else could have put together. Um, makes it seem like it was really conspiratorial. Um, I'll give you a, another quick example. Um, in Somalia, uh, when we shut down the Hawalas, um, that was that was a few people's idea, and um, I think they thought it was a great idea because it was going to fund terrorists or fund you know illicit activity. What they didn't think about though was the social cultural factors and how many of those people were um, were using remittances and monies from abroad to sustain themselves. And when that was shut off, then they had to go into different forms of business to survive. And, and piracy started expanding even more and um, more of um, Al-Shabaad uh, recruitment um, came about from some of those things. Now, there, in some pockets, people say that that was a conspiracy of what we had done to shut down the economy of Somalia, and that this was a big, you know, kind of irregular warfare regime change thing, and and we had targeted individuals. Um, you know, no, we didn't. Uh, it was somebody just had a great idea and just didn't know what the hell they were doing, and didn't think of the second, third order effects of it. And I think that more often than not, that's what I see in deep state activities is you get these these kind of cool ideas that sound really good when you're you know sitting around a table. And then when, when something is actually done, then you're like, oh, shit, we didn't think about what was going to happen. And if they you know, spin out of control in the right direction, you know, great. Looks like we, we had this huge plan. Uh, and if they don't, you know, again, it was another conspiracy because then just, yeah, I think it's it's so interesting, like the whole conspiracy theory thing, and and you know, like you see a lot of crazy shit on YouTube and things like that. But I think when I and I, a good friend of mine, he's actually like really big on conspiracy theories. So I'll learn about different conspiracy theories, not because I'm into it, but just because I'm having conversations with this guy. And um, like he'll say all these things, and I feel like a lot of the conspiracy theories that revolve around. U.S. foreign policy and things like that. I feel like there's some truth to it, like some kind of foundational truth, and then the rest just gets twisted. And um, 
and I feel like what you said is interesting. Like more often often than not, instead of like this huge conspiracy, it was just someone had a bad idea, and 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 that's really what it is. And um, you know, when I think of something like, let's say, the assassination of, of President Kennedy. Um, I, I would imagine in a situation like that where there was someone involved in, you know, some type of government role and had decided to act on something, you know, I mean, who knows who really killed Kennedy, but um, it's just really interesting. Like people attribute some things to like this evil genius conspiracy thing when in reality, I think it just could be a little incompetence at, at certain <laughs> steps of the way. It, I, I would agree. Um, I'm working on another series here with a with a buddy of mine, and uh, and it is conspiracy based, and it's called um, it's called Going Dark, uh, the series. And and what this is about is looking at you know these people in the U.S. who are trying to shut up individuals who knew the truth about certain acts, and um, and they wanted to keep it as a conspiracy. So. To do this this write up on it, you know, we're having to do a lot of research into conspiracies, and it is amazing how many loopholes there are in either the investigations, the communication, who was what, who was where, and and really, as as you're saying, somebody probably screwed up, somebody left something out, somebody reported one thing and they should have said the other, and it's just by a lot of errors and omissions and and mistakes and um, and how things are put together that leads a lot of these things open to conspiracy. But they're so fun. And and I think everybody just kind of likes maybe to think that I, I mean, you know, maybe it's almost like we're thinking, you know, from if we if we don't know if God is real and you have to live by faith, and then you've got a, a superpower government that we're under, you know, whether they're doing good things or bad things, it would be great to know that they are so competent that they can orchestrate uh, events and and manipulate its its people because it would show that those people in power actually know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think more often than not, it's you know it's like everybody else. You know, just like I said earlier, it's it's a guy who who's running an op, but he's actually you know taking his kids to a volleyball game, and you think that he's you know doing something important on his way to the president, but no, he just got to go get some Burger King before the kids go to their sport. You know, I've been listening to a lot of these uh, true crime podcasts lately, and this kind of brings me back to what, you know, you're talking about here where these detectives will say, yeah, like we go, you know, you can go 10 layers deep, but very often what you think happened is what happened, right? Like there was no actual like, like even with a lot of these serial killers, like a lot of what's obvious is what's true. So it's interesting how the human brain works and like, you know, we want to, we almost, I think it's our imagination, you know, we want to construct these different layers and narratives in a story, you know, and obviously some conspiracy theories turn out to be the real thing, but I think 90% of them are probably false, you know, where it's really not 10 layers deep. It's just an obvious mess up or, you know, screw up in the system. It's interesting to me how our minds kind of, kind of play to that you know and and i I was wondering if you know in your experience of of intelligence you know i don't know how much you can talk to that but how often you know those kind of errors happen or if you know they do happen quite a bit or you know where you know there are mistakes made obviously we're human but yeah you know do you see that quite a bit 
Yeah, I well, I did um, because you know, look, I'm I'm on the geek side, so I'm an analyst, and one of the things that we're supposed to do is remove mindset um, and, and and our cognitive biases. So sometimes it's things that we know we're biased towards, other times we don't know, but we just are because that's what shaped us. And I can't tell you the number of times where we would produce intelligence reports that would be dismissed because somebody else just thought they knew better or that they had better. Mm. Um, contacts. Uh, case in point, one of my specialty areas was Iran. Um, IRGC, the uh, the banyads, how they you know do the subterfuge, and so I was tasked to do some work on following that whole massive network across the globe and into Venezuela. Now this is some years back. There was one of the key Middle Eastern terrorists that we were looking for. Um, in the Middle East, uh, wasn't my charter, but we found him in Venezuela. Uh. And through our sources, we had pictures, we had documentation of him taking a helicopter ride. We had him involved and networked with Iranian individuals as well as Venezuelans. And uh, and this was this was a gem. And we ran that up the flagpole so quickly, and we were shot down. And removed from the project because we didn't know what the hell we were talking about. Wow. Um, they, uh, the the powers that be that we were working with at the time, said they knew that he was actually in I don't remember it was Iraq, Syria, what have you, and and so we were we were full of shit, and so that was that was the end of that. Um, that was the last time I worked the the Venezuela project. Wow, so is that guy still in Venezuela? Or? <laughs> no, no. So, so he was a, he was a, a high value target. He was yeah. killed, and okay. then after they cobbled things back in his history of where he had been and 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 um, and what his movements were later on, they found out that he had indeed been in Venezuela. Wow. Um, we found him. What I think at least eighteen months, maybe two years, two and a half months before he was finally taken out. So wow. I think that there's a lot of things like that. Um, I mean, right now, as we see so much going on in Venezuela, I mean, that's a project I worked six, seven years ago. They're just discovering that. Um, it's also one of the things that really rattled me and has probably affected some of my career um, commercially. I start, Because I knew how to do threat finance before it was called threat finance, um, we knew where a lot of the bad guys were in the major banks. And I started working for the big four public accounting firms again, doing anti-money laundering and fraud. And I thought that I was going to be the shit. I thought that they were going to walk me into these banks, sit me up with the CEO, and I'm going to tell them exactly where everything is hidden, where I know that their um, their uh, correspondent bank rep relationships were and, and what was going on with those and how to tie it up. And I can't tell you the amount of times that I was told to shut up. Wow. Because it was, if they found that out, they would have to report it to the regulators, and or my company would tell me, "Shut up," because they don't want to hear it. It's going to create more work. Or in some cases, there's there's this one instance where I was working with this big financial uh, client. Um, we were it was like a two million dollar engagement or million dollar engagement, and we were building a whole database to go through all these bogus checks. And all I had to do is go and look up the. Um, the um, the uh, court reports and, and look at some of the people that had been indicted for it 
and then back that out to the front companies. And within three days, I had put together a network of maybe 75 individuals and companies. And I walked in and I said, here, I think we're done. And uh, they deep fixed that report and said, if we show them that, do you think that we're going to have a year's worth of a project? Wow. We've got over 100 people here. So I think, you know, again, you know, I took a long way over your question, but I think that there's sometimes, you know, there are biases. Um, and then there's also agendas. And I think sometimes if we take the short way around, then we don't achieve another agenda that might be at the forefront. And, um, and I think sometimes that's, that's the bigger issue is, is that your intel is telling you one thing um, and, and then there's a narrative above it that won't let it be. Or in the case, maybe even a, it comes up a lot with Iraq of whether we should have gone in or shouldn't. Um, I can't tell you the amount of times when I was told to change analysis. Mm, wow. Does that, and, and does that kind of, I mean, that's got to kind of, you know, cause you to be jaded somewhat when you're doing this work, right? Where you're, you're, they're like, whoa, boy, we told you to be smart, but not this smart, you know, <laughs> like, um, you know, like, don't go that many layers deep. We just wanted you to fix like the surface problems. That's and, and, I mean, that's, it's it almost sounds like to a point where you're like, Hey, is this job a formality? Like, why do you have me here? Do you want me to actually fix your problems or do you want me to just stay on the surface? I mean, that did that jade you? Yeah. And, and in the fiction writing that I write, it sounds like I have all brooding characters who are living in this morass of gray, as people usually say. Well, no shit. It's because I'm pissed off. <laughs> so my characters are pissed off because they know what bullshit's going on. And that's I, I think that's the truth in what I really write and why it's distasteful to some people, because it is not a man on a white horse who finds the man on the dark horse and uh, beats him over the head and, you know, happy, shiny day. It's it's your your buddies getting killed and emissions going south for things that maybe weren't worth it maybe weren't validated maybe were biased and and lives are, are on on the the um are at stake uh somebody asked me the other day about whether i would encourage my son to go into the intelligence community or military that's a real tough question because on the one hand i, I would be so proud to have him uh, as he is and, and, and the knowledge he has and maybe some things that I've been able to share along the way that he would know about, maybe be able to make a real difference. And on the other hand, I would be so crushed if he made the ultimate sacrifice for nothing. And, and I, I think about that every day, and I think that's something also that comes in the books that I do and in some of the frustrations I have even in the workplace is, some of it doesn't even matter because some asshole is making a decision based on false information, personal benefit, and uh, and they're they're not always considering the ramifications, second, third order effect of, of people who are on the line. Yeah, wow. I, I think that's a, an interesting point that you bring up because um, I remember a couple of years ago I was having I, I was taking part in this sort of debate on Facebook about Iraq and and I think it was when ISIS had taken parts of Iraq and um I think some of the 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 gentlemen 
involved in a debate or argument, I guess, were veterans of um, Ramadi and Fallujah, maybe. And you you had these combat veterans in Iraq. And I, I think they were like a, a combination of Army and Marine guys. And then you had some civilians on the other side of the, the argument or debate. And they were talking about how it, you know, it wasn't worth it and um, we shouldn't have been there and, and, and look at it now. Now ISIS has it and all this stuff. And I remember this guy that I'm friends with, he's a, a former Marine and I think he has like two or three tours to Iraq. And he was just at the end of it, like where people kind of stopped like, you know, arguing with each other and insulting each other and kind of moved past that point. He had brought up a point that to think that what he was doing in Iraq and, and how many of his, his brothers he lost and to think that it was a complete waste is like crushed him. And and I think the person who started that kind of discussion didn't intend for it to go there. They just kind of made a statement. Um, and then when he saw that and some of the other guys saw it, it made them so angry. And, um, you know, I think that's something that is is worth considering because there are many examples of, you know, I mean, how long has the U.S. been in the Middle East in, in, in numbers? You know, it's been, what, 18 years now, going on 18 years. And it just makes you wonder, is it worth dying for at this point? Are, are we going to do, you know, th does the U.S. government have an end game in sight? You know, th there are people who have these ideas on how you can counter this threat but they're not the guys making the decisions, you know? So it's, it's just an interesting point. Like, is it even worth it at this point? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I don't know the answer because, you know, I don't know the, you know, what things do matter and that end up being big picture things or that, you know, open up a cog that opens something else up. And, you know, so it does end up being on the, on the good side, but I do remember, and, and it, and I think this had a lot to do with some of my, my, my mind shaping, um, I was at a, I don't know, it was some type of a meeting or conference. They had a bunch of tables and there's a whole bunch of muckety mucks. And I was with this one uh, um, counterterrorism unit plank holder. And, I, and you know, we're trying to, they're, you know, ringing the bell and we had to sit down and eat. And so we're, we're running around looking for a table and uh, there's like two spots open. So we just, we quickly sit down and we look around us and there's, you know, two generals, one of which was General McCaffrey. And then there's another couple, you know, unit guys uh, that are now generals or, or one's a general. And, you know, he's uh, another guy was a high ranking colonel at the time. And so my guy looks at me, he goes, just just don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and and I remember as we were talking, you know, General McCaffrey says to the one unit guy, he says, he goes, boy, he goes, I, he goes you know, I remember hearing you were in uh, Mogadishu. And he's like, by God, I would have loved to have been there in that firefight. My God, how great that would have been. And uh, I, I remember the unit guy, you know, just politely kind of nodding. And, and I think there was that was really telling to me of someone in leadership who, you know, I, I, I don't know much about McCaffrey. I don't I, I've heard that he was in a lot of, you know, uh, battles and, and stuff. And but for whatever reason, it just. It, it gave me the impression that he had lost touch of, you know, more than the, the glory of war and, uh, you know, the 
the, the, the great smell of napalm in the morning type thing. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I thought that, you know, and fortunately I've seen this, this, this unit guy, um, you know, who's grown now into senior leadership. Uh, I know that he's not going to forget it. And I also know that he was a scholar and that he knew about the Middle East going, you know, all the way back to and beyond Alexander the Great. So I think he knows what's up against things. And I think he realizes when it's needed to put boots on the ground and when it's time to walk away and, and do things for diplomacy and, and stuff like that. But I, I, it just scared me that there are some people who are thinking about, you know, let's get you in the fight. You're going to have a great time. And um, and not think about some of those second, third order effects of those left behind and whether it's really worth it or not. You know, that's JT, that's interesting to me, you know, because of the layers of depth of technology and and the amount of research we can now do and, and look into things, you know, how deeply we can go and how deep you can dive within those layers. It's almost become this kind of uh, catalyst that's created, you know, that's created perpetual warfare in a way because there's always an enemy to fight, right? That enemy always exists. And if you look deep enough, there's always going to be an enemy there. So I wonder how much, you know, you're in the intelligence community, how much technology has, you know, kind of perpetuated that to where, yeah, there are guys to fight and there are guys to kill, but that's been going on since the beginning of time, right? Like, you know, enemies and in the necessity of war. But like, you know, for example, during World War II days or World War One, I'm sure there were some bad guys that needed to be knocked off. So I guess it's kind of the chicken or the egg thing where, yes, we're definitely more reachable as far as being able to be attacked. But how much of that perpetuates itself into this state where we're constantly fighting because of the depth of our intelligence and understanding of where the enemy is at? I, I agree. And that's a great question, um, by the way. It, I, I'm not trying to use this to, to plug for my own benefit, but, and, and when I write, I'm not, I'm not really political. I know that sometimes my jadedness comes through but the reason that I wrote this Task Force Orange series is it's not really about that unit. Um, it's it's about you know taking an offshoot of a guy. So it's kind of like you know saying the Lone Ranger is not really all about the the um, what was the Texas Rangers. Um, right. In in this case, you know they're using NSA uh, feeds on domestic surveillance to target individuals. And and one of the things that comes out in this, again, being kind of in the gray, is there are people that are being targeted that this hunter-killer team goes after, or maybe it's out of context. Mm. And so we're choosing to fight the fight under the auspices of saying that we are doing a preemptive strike to save lives later, but we're finding that maybe what we're targeting isn't what we think we're targeting. And so in most of these Task Force Orange books, I've got Drake, who's kind of chasing his tail and going after targets and realizing in some cases he's just maybe taken out the wrong people. Um, and, mm. and I think that that's also part of what we're challenged with as, as a nation and in military, especially as we get into AI now driving some of the targeting is contextually, is it right? I mean, yes, there's going to be some evidence of something going on. But how well do we really know those nuances 
of of what is good and what is bad and and what has shaped that. Um, one of the I, I wrote an article some years back under my real name. Oh, I should I, I think I even wrote it with Boykin. Uh, where I was talking about how I had done some intel support for an MLE team going into Africa. And I didn't have the context of their mission. And so everything that I was writing was based on, you know, what I thought they might be doing. And so I put all of this stuff out. And if it didn't have the context of what they were actually looking for, it could be perceived to be something completely different, whether at that point, I think it was like Sudan. So we're saying these individuals could be John Jaweed and really maybe they were just a Dinka tribe. Um, but without that context, you might just see, okay, these people are across the river and they've got, you know, these amulets around their neck. And so we're assuming that that's what it is. But if you don't understand the tribes and their religious cultures, you may think it's something else and, and they could actually be a friendly. So I think, you know, that's that whole widen the aperture, that big picture of what you're looking at before you're just going out and targeting. And I think that that's also, um, you know, I think that there's with the CIA, a lot of the analysts are a little bit more um, academic and, and liberal. And I think that that's one of the reasons that they push in some cases for their analysis to be more, dealing with human factors and shaping because if you're seeing through the lens of the enemy and you know as the old sun tzu know your enemy as you you know yourself um if we really knew them a little bit better i think sometimes contextually we might be able to avoid some conflict but i think then you've got a big military apparatus that doesn't have something to go out and take care of John, who was that guy? We had someone on the show who's talking a little bit about, yeah. well, a lot about AI. Who was that again? Yeah, that we he, had on. He was a former ranger, um, and he had worked at the DOD, and and um, he'd worked on several programs and had been like kind of read into a lot of things uh, regarding, you know, the how artificial intelligence is sort of creeping into the, the targeting space and, and things like that. And um, it's really fascinating. And Yeah, we were talking about target selection and right. like theory and, like, how AI has a really hard time, like, determining, like, factors of a culture or community. So, like, what could, you know, even, for example, on the, the, you know, ground-level basis of, you know, picking out a friendly from a foe, somebody right. has a weapon, but in that culture, weapons are very accepted that – you know, AI takes out the target, but that wasn't really ne the right or necessary move, you know? Right. Um, yeah. His name is Paul Sherry. Uh, Paul Sherry. Yeah. And, um, right. He had, yeah. a, he has a book out, uh, called the army of none and, uh, the autonomous weapons in the future of war. And he, he kind of like throughout the book, it's like really, uh, giving you the facts on, on, um, you know, what some of these things are, are taking place. And then, I guess he gives an analysis on it towards the end about uh, is it necessary or in some you know is it useful in some cases is it not so useful in others it's really interesting. I read that book and I dove into a ditch every time I heard a drone flying by and <laughs> it was just some like ten year old playing with their drone. <laughs> you know I was. Like, so after that, I was just like, oh, my gosh, dude, this stuff is pretty scary. Yeah. Like, I'll, tell you what, I'll tell you what's scarier about it than 
for me than 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 just its existence itself. I think if you had some of the best and the brightest minds working from with AI and you were able to program and put those feeds in from, from again the best and the brightest and and multiple multiple uh, cultures and understandings of different dynamics. I mean, there's just so many layers that have to go into that programming. Now think about it. The military wants it. So how are they going to get it? Lowest cost bidder. Right. Mm, that's scary. So, that's so, very scary. Yeah. So even in the intelligence space, when you think about so many of the graybeards that know what's going on, but you can't get hired back in at certain levels because of the, the cost factor, um, they're going to end up, you know, slotting a billet as a GS 10 to 12 in many of those cases. Well, you're still dealing with junior or less experienced people. Um, until we change, I think, our procurement and how we are going about investing in our, our military and our capabilities, I will put it on the record to say we are not hiring always the best and the brightest that can do that work because you can't afford them and you can't compete against industry. And not everybody in that space has such altruistic intentions where they're going to say, yeah, I'm willing to just take a 40 or 60 or an $80,000 pay cut because I think it's the right thing. Right. Um, and uh-huh. so I think there is also one of the the problems that we have with, you know, intelligence failures and some of the other failures that we have, because when we do go to procure, we can't always get the best people because we're not willing to pay for it. Right. So instead of like your, you know, cheap Beretta jamming up on you and you're firing it in a, you know, in a combat scenario, it looks like, you know, oh, we didn't, you know, procure as much information as we should have for our drone technology. So now they just shoot random people and, you know, they think this tribe's that tribe, but that tribe's not actually that tribe, you know, because we didn't have the intelligence, guys. Sorry, we didn't want to pay for it. That's right. It'll be, we'll call it AAI, artificial average intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, man, that is scary. That is, and that's a great point, too. I, I, I guess, you know, when it comes down to it, that's where kind of that, you know, capitalistic system fails, you know, yeah. where it's like, hey, we're looking for the best and the brightest. We want that, but we need you guys to take this type of pay cut. And it's like, well, yeah, but who's going to be willing to do that when they know they can go to the private market and get paid so much more to do it? You know, right. it's like you've got to pay for what you get. That's and right. And it's, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's frightening, especially with something like that, where it's life and death decisions, but life and death decisions on a, you know, almost unfathomable scale. Right. And yeah. I, I think it's it's kind of, you know, talking about the budgeting and stuff like that. When you think about how much money, you know, was lost or unaccounted for, uh, like, for example, with the Iraq war and... um I think when Trump maybe it was in his first year or something like that, or maybe a little before that, uh, they had done a study on, on, you know, how the money was spent. And there was like, I don't remember if it was a trillion dollars or something like that, that was just completely unaccounted for. So you think about all the waste and, you know, if, uh, yeah. if they had the ability to consolidate the funds uh, and, and use it in a more effective way. You know, would they be able to pay for the best, you know, Intel guy or would they be able to hire that former, you know, 
unit guy who knows that area and and he can really make the difference. You know what I mean? It's 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 really kind of, um, I guess, ironic how how the money is being spent in many ways, but either you know straight up stolen or or being you know people are ordering you know gold sinks or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, (laughs) I'll tell you another real quick little anecdote that was that was kind of funny. It happened over the last couple of years. Uh, We were doing some work for Department of Defense Combatant Command, and uh, I was on the project. I was brought in as kind of a a SME guy for this particular um, um, AOR, and uh, I, I was advising them, and and we're getting the project going. And all of a sudden, we found out that the prime contractor wasn't going to be able to afford everybody because of the pass through. So I was pulled off the project and, uh, I, you know, went back to doing something else. And then about two months later, I was asked to come back in to go to that command and go through the briefing. And, uh, I hadn't seen any of this stuff, you know, because I, they, they let somebody else do it. And, uh, so I'm sitting in this meeting and one of the first things that uh, that happened is they gave me the, the thing to look at, and I said, "Well, this is going to be a shit show." And they said, well, "Why is that?" And I said, "Well, uh, you plagiarized some stuff." And they said, "Well, we had to plagiarize some stuff because uh, you know low cost, so we had to just kind of scrape some things with what we had, and we had a lot of junior people, and so you know, but we don't think that they would recognize it. It's all in hard copy." And I said, "Well, I think you're going to because uh, they've already got this." And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, about eight years ago, I wrote this report. And they Uh, had Wow. So not only did you plagiarize something that ended up being mine, but you plagiarized something that is what you're passing on is intel or information that is now completely dated. Mm. And um, Jeez. And and that's what they were going to sell for about a hundred and twenty thousand dollars, um, because that's what this command could afford. Now, if we would have done it from scratch and and gone back through, it probably would have cost about three or four hundred thousand dollars. But it was a bl- it was a blind spot that they wouldn't have been able to collect from, but that we were able to get. Um, but you know, you get what you pay for, and uh, and in this case. They were getting something that uh, was old and had been regurgitated. Um, but moreover, you know, and the scary thing was the combatant command people that were in there didn't know it because they were also junior and hadn't read some things that had gone on, you know, some years back. So it's it's kind of circuitous. And for those of, you know, the listeners who don't kind of understand that, you know, intelligence, I mean, you know, even in a mainline, I served in a mainline infantry, you know, when I was in Iraq. I mean, intelligence is constantly changing. I mean, it's, you know, eight years would be like, you know, might as well be 800 years over there, you know, like, like that. I mean, isn't that true? You know, where because I remember things, you know, going out on, you know, operational missions where, you know, mission data would change like, you know, within a week or so. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, even trying to pass that information off as, you know, having any basis, you know, in what you were going to be doing. Like, that's 
That's wild. Yeah, and you know, and that also goes back to all right. You've just been given a task to come up with this this intelligence um, for this organization, but really, without the tasker telling what the key intelligence questions were in the context of what they were being used, really, even though they're asking for intelligence, it kind of demonstrated the fact that they didn't know what intelligence was because all we were able to provide was information because without the context of its use or how it would be operationalized, it's not going to be insightful and it's not going to be actionable. So again, you know, it's, you're just asking for a bunch of crap and that's exactly what they got. Wow. Yeah. I think, I think you saw a lot of that, like, you know, that you get what you pay for kind of thing. Uh, particularly in Iraq, I'm I'm not too familiar with how that worked in Afghanistan, but I know for sure with Iraq, where you had um, these huge contracting companies uh, getting these contracts to do all these different jobs, like any anything from truck driving, you know, supplies to Iraq, or um, on the on the the combat outpost, the guys who would um, you know make sure the water was clean, you know, things like that. And I remember they would they would hire these huge companies to come in, and I and they, there was a documentary on it, and they interviewed this one marine, and he I believe I forgot his name, but I remember he testified before Congress about this, and he his job was to make sure that the water was was clean and usable on the base for the marines. And this contracting company had bought someone in. So basically, he he trained the person who was replacing him, uh, not replacing him as in he would go, go home back to the States because he, he, he was still on his deployment. But they had a civilian contractor come in who he had to train the guy how to do the job. And, and I'm sure that the guy who he was training was making maybe twice what he was making. And, and, you know, something like that is just an absolute waste of, of money. And, and we saw that a lot with the, the huge contracting companies that were, were getting these contracts uh, to work in Iraq. And, and even with some of the more, um, the more tactical side of it, like with Blackwater, I believe there was a point where they were hiring like, you know, old Peruvian commandos um, in, instead of, you know, more recent uh, you know, people who have gotten out of the, the American special operations community, for example, just because they could pay the Peruvian guys, you know, much less, you know? Yeah. Jeez. Wow. Well, I, I know that on, on one of the projects that I was on, because it was a discrete program and it was waived from oversight, um, I know that that leadership of on the commercial side to support it took a lot of financial liberties, and they had even said at one point, because I, I raised a little issue, um, and they said, well, <laughs> who's going to know? Um, you know, we're providing them uh, good value, and, uh, you know, this is kind of an open contract. So, you know, we're giving them better than what they're they're paying for anyway. So it's okay. Uh, I mean, I, I left I left that company uh, and, and blew a little whistle on some of those, those activities, but it, um, it's, it's pervasive in, in how that fraud, waste, and abuse occurs in a lot of it. Now, I think with procurement being a little tighter in some spots, uh, it's been getting better than it had been for sure, but it's still pretty rife within the community. 
Well, I mean, you look at even, you know, you can even look at our uniforms, John. Like, when we were going overseas, you know, even when I was joining up in the Army, I think it was like 05, you know, we're, we're all wearing BDUs, but we see, like, you know, some drill sergeants come out with these brand-new ACU uniforms, which is basically the Army just being like, ah, the Marine Corps doesn't know what we're do- they're doing. We're just going to blend those two together, and it'll make perfect sense. Like, you know, like, I mean – those were like, you know, we're looking at each other in these uniforms and we're out, you know, on, you know, training and we're like, oh my God, dude, it's like we're highlighted, you know, like <laughs> this is a disaster, you know, like, you know, yet the army had spent so much money to get that right. contract because the army does often spend the most as far as the equipment goes. And it was like the biggest display of, you know, of ignorance uh, when it comes to choosing a uniform and there were all these different, you know, camouflage pattern companies coming to them and telling them, hey, like this won't work. Like unless you're just going to be standing up against, you know, you know, uh, you know, concrete the whole time, which you won't be. That won't always be the environment. This will not work at all. Like you definitely need, you know, different pattern camouflage like but because you know the bidder coming in was offering them a certain rate you know and a cut as we've been talking about with these other programs it's like the army was all on board but you know i mean that's a base level showing of you know how saving money supposedly but it doesn't really save you money because then you end up going to multi-cam like five years old ten years later um you know, it, it's, it can, it can get guys killed even, you know, like that, that's, it really is hazardous and, and it's ignorant at, at the, it's ignorant at best, but you know, when you're doing this and, and with full knowledge that this can get guys killed, then it's, then it becomes almost criminal. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the only way that you can live with yourself and see a little bit of the white at the end of the tunnel on this is that is is the is the reality that, you know, maybe 80 or 90 percent of the people who are serving and who are in this work, whether it's intelligence or, or the military, um, are doing the right thing. Right. And, uh, and and are making those sacrifices and and are doing everything that is possible to to make things work. And so I think that. You know, I guess the only thing that would stop me from getting really, really pissed off right now again, thinking about this and rehashing it, is that there are so many great folks out there working in our in our government and military community that uh, that are doing the right thing and uh, that are holding people accountable. And I, I think while it's easy for us to uh, to to expose some of these issues, I. I you know, we, we do have to remind ourselves that there's a lot of folks out there that are doing some some great things, and there's some great families behind those men and women, and um, and and that's that's what makes us who we are, and and what we can do, and and why we need to do better. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. So, JT, if if anyone listening is interested in like, um, you know, checking out some of your books or or keeping up with you on on, on a you know social media or anything like that, where can they go to do that? Well, they can get the books at most any you know e e bookstore, um, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can buy them in print too. Um, they're in Audible. They're all over the place. I'd say I, I highly discourage you from letting your kids younger than 
16, 17, read those books. And, uh, and I think that if somebody is reading the books, they are going to be darker. Um, they are going to be, you know, <laughs> pretty, pretty nasty in some cases. And there are an, a, more than one F bombs used usually per page. So, <laughs> you know, with, with that as a warning, I think if you do really want to get a taste of the black and, uh, and walk a little bit with me, uh, check them out. Um, the first series, uh, Shadow Masters, uh, the Sean Havens Black Ops novels, those were independently published, so they're not as edited uh, as well as I would have liked. Uh, the new versions, uh, the Task Force Orange thrillers, are done by Kensington. Um, they're, they're a bit better. I think I got a little bit better as a writer. Um, but I am not in the same caliber of uh, the greats like Mark Graney and Vince Flynn. Um, I think that if you're reading my books, uh, you're not getting a really great, well-written novel uh, by a, an experienced writer. Um, you're getting a man's perspective that's trying to fantasize and, and falsify some things as a, as a story um, based on what I've seen, know, and, and heard. And I think it, that's just a little bit different. But I think I think people who enter those books with that in mind and want to get a taste of, you know, unacknowledged wave programs, uh, they're probably a pretty good read. And, and you're also on social media as well, right? I am. Uh, almost everything I do is branded under J.T. Patton Books, and that's uh, Patton E-N, not like general. Um, so at Twitter, at uh, J.T. Patton Books, we'll get you there, and then on Facebook, and then jtpattonbooks.com on, uh, on the website. Nice. Awesome. So, um, JT, uh, it was great to have you on here and and, and um, kind of provide some insight to some of that that type of um, that type of work and and of course you know talking about you know all these different things that we touched on I thought it was great I think the audience would really appreciate it and um, you know I, I want to thank you for coming on and thank you for your service as well oh, thanks so much I really enjoyed spending my afternoon with you guys I appreciate it and hope listeners do enjoy it yeah JT thanks for spreading your knowledge uh, it was definitely a privilege to hear because I think it's very easy to you know think of this in a kind of mass way you know where you don't really see the individual side so it's always good to hear uh from a specialist who's in that community and, and knows what they know so th thanks for coming on we really appreciate it thanks tim good meeting you